Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Emery Brown, who is Professor of Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School and Professor of Medical Engineering and Computational Neuroscience at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His lab develops statistical methods and signal processing algorithms for neuroscience data analysis. Welcome, Emery. Well, thanks for having me, Gil. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I want to start with one of your older papers, General Anesthesia and Altered States of Arousal. Mm -hmm. Systems neuroscience analysis. Um, so, so you say placing a patient in a state of general anesthesia is crucial for safely and uh, humanely performing most surgical and many neurosurgical procedures. How anesthetic drugs create and create the state of general anesthesia is considered a major mystery of modern medicine. Uh, unconsciousness induced by altered arousal and or cognition is perhaps the most fascinating behavioral state of general anesthesia. Um, I have done this only once, Emery, and it was frightening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So, um, so, the, so there are, we have a lot of different types of chemicals. Uh, we typically use combinations of them. And obviously, there are very, many, many different surgical procedures. So the duration of these procedures are quite varied. So, so what's the state of the art in this area today? Right. So that, that's a good question. So that's an intro to a paper that I wrote basically 10 years ago. And, yeah. um, and, <clears throat> and I think one of the things that we figured out in the last, in, in that time period is we have a little more insights into like what's going on in the brain under anesthesia. And I think that we can, we can use those ideas, that understanding to, you know, make, make, make sort of further improvements. So, so just to, just to explain a little bit, so we have different categories of drugs that we use to create the state of general anesthesia. So first, let me just give you a definition of what general anesthesia is. Yeah. It has about four components. So you're unconscious, you're not perceiving pain, you're not going to remember anything that's going on, and you're not moving. So the it's easy for the surgeons to operate. And this is done using drugs, and it's reversible. So we bring you in and we bring you out. And also we keep 
physiologic stability. So we watch your heart rate, your blood pressure, oxygen saturation, your body temperature. So that's general anesthesia. That's the that's the description of it. And we use combinations of drugs to do that. All right. So you know, one we may use one drug to help to put you into the state. Another combination of drugs to help basically like like maintain the state. So so you're in a state where you're essentially insensate to what's going on in, in, in the outside world. And as I suggested there, you have to be in, in a state like that in order to tolerate what would otherwise be a traumatic event. They're going to like maybe do heart surgery, do abdominal surgery, that sort of thing. So 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 in other words, that, that that's a that's a, a requirement, if you see what I'm saying, the conditions that I just described. Right. All right. So, so, so then, the, the the high level statement, which I think uh, sort of can maybe help orient the thinking of people, is that the drugs <clears throat> act in the brain, and as they act in the brain, they cause the the brain circuits, the connections between the various parts of the brain. They generate current oscillations. Yes. So right now, there's current flow in our brains as I'm talking to you, as you're listening to me. And that current flow represents the activity of the brain, you know, processing information, you know, carrying out our, our, our the functions in our daily lives. Right. What, what the anesthetics do is they hijack those circuits and they control the circuits. Mm-hmm. So they produce large oscillations. And these, these large oscillations are actually one of the, what we think are probably one of the primary mechanisms through which these drugs are producing the states of altered arousal that make you unconscious or make it, make it possible for you not to perceive pain. And as long as you keep the drugs there, these oscillations are there. Yeah. And then when you turn them off, the, the you know, they, they subside and you come to. Could you, um, Emery, could you give some definition? So you say here the altered states of arousal are sedation, unconsciousness, sedation, uh, analgesia, disassociative anesthesia, pharmacologic uh, non-REM sleep, and neuroleptic anesthesia. Mm-hmm. Um so, so these are sort of gradations of unconsciousness, or how do they how do they sort of line up in a in a hierarchy? So, so let's do sedation and unconsciousness. So, sedation is I'm giving you increasing levels of let's say a drug like propofol, and I give you a little bit, and perhaps you're groggy. You know, I talk to you, you still respond to me. You know, you tell me that you feel groggy or sleepy or that sort of thing. I give you a little bit more, you don't speak as much, or I have to poke you to get you to respond to me. So you're still sedated, but now you're deeply sedated. I give you a little bit more, and now you're unconscious, you're unresponsive, okay? Yeah. All right. So that, that would be sedation going to unconsciousness. Then in the, in the dissociative state, that's, more, uh, that's a condition which is more strongly associated like with ketamine. And ketamine, which you know is is it's a very potent anesthetic. It's a very potent painkiller, but it's also a drug of abuse. It creates states uh, which in which patients hallucinate or or people using it or patients hallucinate. Yeah. All right. And so one of the hallucinations is there's a perception of disconnection. They you know they you know for example I poke you in a way which would be painful, but it's no longer painful you realize that I'm poking you, but it doesn't hurt. Hmm. That's dissociation. Yeah. And, and in some extreme cases, people have even reported having like sort of out-of-body experiences where they, you know, like the same sorts of things that are described when, 
you know, people have near-death experiences. So, so that would be the associative anesthesia. In other words, there's a disconnection between what would be the normal sensation and what you're actually perceiving as occurring. So if that's the case, and you can imagine you could operate on somebody in those conditions because they're not perceiving the stimulus as pain. Mm. All right. And then neuroleptic anesthesia is something which we really don't use that much anymore because um, what we come to appreciate is that it's basically a chemical locked-in syndrome. Externally, the person looks as if they're fine. They look as if there's nothing going on, there are no problems or what have you, they're nice and calm. But when they wake up, they say, you know, I was locked in. I, I, I was trying to tell you that, that you know, I was, uh, that I was perceiving what was going on, but, but I, 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 couldn't, I, I couldn't convey it to you. And so, so that's, that's, those drug combinations that do that, we don't use anymore. Okay, okay. And so mechanistically, Emery, so when, when these things happen, um, the, the current flow, as you say, in the circuits in the brain, that is still happening, right? So it, it, during a surgical procedure, um, you know, the pain-related sensations, are they still happening in the brain or, uh, and the brain doesn't realize it or it doesn't happen at all? And that's a very good question. So, so let's take two pieces. Let's take the unconsciousness and we'll take the pain piece, okay? All right, yeah. so let's talk about the unconsciousness. So the unconsciousness, you know, you receive the drugs and you have communications going back and forth between different parts of the brain. And now those communications are hijacked and, and by these oscillations. And, these, and so it's, it's that, that, let's say that renders you unconscious. So let's just yeah. say I gave you a drug which, which, which just made you unconscious, like propofol, just to be concrete. Right. Now, let's say I didn't give you any medication that would control pain processing, because now technically, this is a, a technical point, but I'll, I'll, I'll just make it because I think it's important. Yeah. Pain is conscious perception of something that hurts. It means you're aware of it. Now, I've just rendered you unconscious, but your pain circuits can still be working when you're unconscious. Right. Okay, that's what we call nociception. Okay. All right, that okay. means you're processing information, which would otherwise be painful, but you're unconscious. Right. So how do we know that you're processing it? Well, so let's say let's so I've, I've made you unconscious. OK, you've gotten propofol unconscious. I gave you nothing to control this no susceptive information flow. Now, your heart rate and blood pressure goes off the wall as soon as the surgeon starts to operate. Hmm. So that's the perception that you're perceiving this this otherwise stressful information. Right. So that means what I have to do is I have to add in something that's going to block that. From, from, from being processed or, so I would add in like an opioid or, you know, ketamine or, or dexmedetomine drugs, which control the pain circuits. Hmm. And so is it, is it right to assume, uh, Emory, that uh, because your blood pressure is, uh, your heart rate is all uh, raising to, to very high levels, is it uh, reasonable to assume that the brain actually knows what's going on? Well, so the, the nose is the operative term there. So, 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 so here's the way to think about it. Imagine yeah. a, so your autonomic nervous system, the, the heart rate and blood pressure responses, those are some of your most primitive responses, right? They're part of your fight or flight response. In other words, you know, you stick your finger on a pin, you pull your hand up and shake it before you even realize what happens, right? Right. And then if you think about it, if you just look at your perception, your heart rate's up a little bit and your blood pressure's probably up too. Yeah. 
So that didn't even make it to conscious perception. That just made, if you think of like a, like a corporate structure, right? That didn't make it up to the executives. That just made it to the middle level managers. And they, they told you immediately, or just the spinal cord, and they told you right away to pull your finger back. And then you figured out what happened. It's instinctual. It, it's, it's, it's a reflex. Reflex. Right. Yeah. So they're there to protect you. So, so those sorts of things you can shut down independently of someone of having conscious perception, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, so going back to what you were saying before in terms of um, the, the, the electricity flow in the circuits. Um, so the oscillations you talked about, uh, Emery, so okay, could you give me some color on you know, what you mean by those oscillations? Right. So, so imagine electroencephalogram. I think we've all probably seen those, the brain waves that you measure like when someone's asleep or the people are doing cognitive studies, maybe yoga or they, yeah. they measure them in people who are in coma. And I'm, so I'm gonna put some numbers on this. Yes. So with us standing here talking like, or sitting here talking like right now, and we would put EEG on us, we would see oscillations that are very small amplitude and they'd be, let's say in about the 30 to 50 cycles per second range, okay? Very small amplitude. And, I'll, and let's say like about five, five, uh, five microvolts, okay? Very small, all right? Yeah. Now, just to contrast that with what happens, once you're under anesthesia, let's say something like propofol or one of the ethers, the oscill those oscillations change. They become much larger. So the amplitude goes in adults, goes up to about 20 to 50 microvolts. And now the oscillations shift to a much lower frequency, somewhere between 0.1 to 1 cycle per cycles per second, or, or, or between let's say eight to 12 cycles per second. So there's a big shift. So they go from low amplitude, high frequency to large amplitude, low frequency oscillation. And it's very striking. It's not subtle at all. It's very, very obvious when this occurs. And basically as long as you keep the anesthetic flowing, you can see these oscillations on the EEG. So you can actually use them as a guide to help you dose your drugs. Right. So, so that, uh that low frequency, high amplitude oscillations, um, does it mean that the information flow um, with that type of oscillation is either slow or what, what exactly happens so, when that? So this is something that we've learned a lot about in the last few years, both from studies in humans with electrodes, patients that have uh, epilepsy who have electrodes implanted, we've actually been able to measure directly from their brain, from their cortical surfaces, what's actually occurring during these times. And also more recently in the last three or three years or so with my colleagues at MIT, Earl Miller, and one of his students, Jake Donahue, one of our students, I should say, Jake Donahue did his PhD with us in monkeys, yeah. where what you can actually see is when these oscillations come on, so neurons spike, they send little impulses to convey information, to communicate between the different brain regions. So what happens is, let's say the number of spikes per second is somewhere between eight, eight to 12 spikes per second when you're awake. When these large oscillations come on, they modulate that rate from eight to 12 spikes per second down to about a half to one spike per second. So when the oscillation comes up, the neurons can spike a little bit, but not nearly as much as it did before. When the oscillation goes down, there's a long period where there's no spiking whatsoever. So these oscillations 
are modulating how the fundamental elements of the brain's communication circuits are able to work, which are these, these action potential or spikes. So when that occurs, these, when you see these large oscillations, you have very strong down regulation of the ability of the parts of the brain to communicate. And so, so you need the spikes for communication. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that dampens that, dampens that communication process. Exactly. And so, so, so we do this um, chemically. Uh, you, we have a, uh, another paper that is uh, slightly older than the one that we were talking about, where you make a distinction between anesthesia, sleep, and coma. Yes. Um, and <laughs> just anecdotally, uh, Emery, you know, my doctors told me that I don't need much, uh, you know, to do uh, to become unconscious. Mm -hmm. Very little very little chemical mm -hmm. out to sleep. Uh, I don't know if there's any connection, uh, but it is, it is not a standard process, it, it seems, right? For, for humans, uh, everybody's sort of different. Right, and I think the, the, the first thing to, I mean, one of, the, one of the main points we wanted to make in that particular paper, which we call general anesthesia, sleep and coma, was we wanted to just put, yeah. to give an accurate characterization of where general anesthesia stood on this spectrum or, or, you know, relative to these two things that at least people anecdotally, anecdotally, you know, have some intuition about, you know, coma, meaning someone's profoundly unconscious, unresponsive, perhaps due to brain injury or, or of, of some type. And then sleep, something which all of us do every night. And we, you know, we have some idea of like what that's like. And so the, the main point that we, you know, there are a few main points we made in this, in that particular article, but one of the ones was that General anesthesia is a drug-induced reversible coma, because if you look at how I described the, what, the definition that I gave at the outset, you're insensate, you're not perceiving any sort of pain, you're unconscious, you know, you're not moving. And if I hadn't told you that, that the patient was in, you know, under general anesthesia, you would swear that they were in a coma. So it's a drug-induced reversible coma, that it, because it's behaviorally, it's essentially, this, that's the state that we're inducing. Sleep is entirely different, and this is an important distinction to appreciate. Remember, we have two main components of sleep. We have what we call non-REM sleep and REM sleep. So non-rapid eye movement sleep and then rapid eye movement sleep. And we go between those two states roughly every 90 minutes, and we do that about four to six times a night, and we wake up from, typically from, from REM sleep. So if you think about it, Throughout the course of the night, your brain is going between these two states and the EEG changes as you move between the states. So this, the, the REM state has, has <clears throat> large slow oscillations, which look, and I, and I underscore look, similar to some of the slow oscillations you see under anesthesia, but they're quite different structurally. Then you, you, you stay in that for about you know, 90 minutes or so. Then you pop up to a state where you have very high frequency oscillations and you go back to a state of low oscillations. In contrast, under anesthesia, we just bring you to one state and hold you there. Right. And so there's, anesthesia is not a physiologic state. In fact, you know, if you said it's like they're pathologically induced oscillations because they're induced by chemicals, that's a more accurate characterization of what's going on because you're not processing information. You know, you're unconscious, you're not dreaming when you're profoundly unconscious. Yeah. And 
it's not doing anything that's going to make it restorative in the in the way that I think we understand sleep to be restorative. We need sleep to be healthy. You know, our, our immune system requires it. In some sense, it helps us consolidate memories. It you know, it, it's a time when our brain is perhaps resting. So none of those things are what transpires under anesthesia. In fact, it's just the opposite. People often have brain dysfunction after anesthesia. Yeah, yeah. This sounds so fascinating, Emery. So I, I'm just speculating. Uh, I know nothing about this. So uh, we need deep sleep uh, to remain healthy. Um, and if you if you have sort of very deep sleep, it it's going to resemble more like general anesthesia. But it seems like the 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 body is cycling back and forth in some way between REM and non-REM. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine it would have had some um, evolutionary advantages, right? When you 50,000 years ago, sleeping in a cave, you probably cannot sleep, <laughs> deep sleep for many hours. Uh, was that the reason, you think, uh, from an evolutionary perspective, why we are switching? I mean, that's a good question. I mean, and, and it, it certainly makes sense. And I'd have to sort of, you know, probably bounce that question off of my, my um, you know, my anthropology colleagues. But, but when you think about it, you know, <clears throat> humans are, you know, there are very few species that have um, consolidated sleep. I mean, and we're one of them. And, and as you suggest, if you were to sleep too deeply, that, that, that might not be good for survival, right? Um, so like what the, what, you know, so what the appropriate amount of time is to sleep in order to, so that you can survive at the same time and function, I think is something that we'll have to let the, you know, the, you know, let our anthropology colleagues tell us about. But the whole idea of, you know, you know, sort of sleeping, you know, at night or eight hours, consolidated sleep, if you think about it, that sort of tracks the, the development of, um, you know, controlling the lighting in your environment. Because prior to that, when we were more agrarian society, when the, when the sun went down, right, you went down, right? When the sun came up, you came up to work, right? So, so there's been some socially engineered evolution, if you see what I'm saying, where we say, okay, all right, so we can we have lights which can be on at night now, so we'll we'll and so so you can work later on and now go to sleep and and to rest when you decide to, as opposed to when it was dictated by your environment. Your your that represents us controlling our environment more. If you see what I'm saying. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the, this data will be difficult to get, but if you have some longitudinal data, it'll be interesting to see how the hunter-gatherer sleep patterns change uh, when agrarian societies sort of uh, took hold. And maybe more recently, um, you know, with, with a lot of people spending more time in front of the TV and computers, how that might have might have affected uh, how the brain looks at sleep. Do we have any data? Yeah, well, I, there, there's a lot of information about that. What we realize is it's, it's very discombobulated. I mean, we, you know, we, you know, if you look at the recommendations for, for healthy living, they're very, they're very simple. I mean, they are, you know, eating well, exercising and getting a good amount of sleep. You know, people are looking for like, you know, major, you know, tricks or things to start, try to pull off, but, the, but that's basically it. And, you know, with the advent of, I mean, you know, you know, cell phones and what have you, the, you know, these little doses of light that we get in the middle of the night because we check our cell phone and those sorts of things, 
they don't really, they don't help us. In fact, they hurt us. I mean, light is one of the most potent, you know, light is one of the most potent stimuli for shifting our internal clock and, you know, and changing our, our, our internal dynamics in that regard. So that if uh, what we would, what we should really do is just, you know, try to, you know, sleep, let it be consolidated. And then, you know, you know, that's when you, you, you know, you put your iPhone away, you put your, you know, you you disconnect and really let your let your brain sleep and recover. That 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 would be the ideal scenario. Yeah, yeah. So so you called in this. Um, I think you mentioned this. Uh, so you called general anesthesia drug induced right. coma. Reversible, reversible coma. And, <laughs> okay, drug induced reversible coma. And the reason we can reverse it is because uh, either the body gets rid of the drugs over time uh, and when, when it clears, it goes back to the initial conditions. Is that, yeah, is that what I mean, happens? Yeah, that's roughly what happens. But you see the, so yeah, so we, we time the drugs. So, you know, we watch the surgery, we, we turn the drugs down and we time it and we have a sense of how long they're gonna act based on how much we've administered, how old the patient is, how sick the patient is, what the EEG is telling us if we're monitoring that during the surgery. And based on that, we can turn the turn the, reduce the drugs, the drug administration, as the surgery progresses, and time it so that we can turn it off and have the patient have the patient come too. So that's what we understand the properties of the drugs and how they we can we predict how they're going to affect a given patient given you know surgery and again the physiological state of the patient. So that that's that's what I'm referring to. Yeah, and so in a coma though. Do we still have this oscillation? So it's, it's really interesting. So uh, I didn't say this at the outset, but, you know, the brain under anesthesia is not turned off. It's dynamic. It has these oscillations like I described. And if you look at patients who are in coma, they and that's one of the things we show in one of the figures there in that paper, in that 2010 paper, which is in the New England Journal, we show the the what the dynamics of deep anesthesia look like. And... They look very, very similar to the sorts of patterns that we see when patients are in are in deep states of uh, coma. So, lots of slow oscillations. Another state, which is called burst suppression, where you have a period where the brain bursts, then it's quiet, it's burst, it's quiet, and then perhaps a combination of slow oscillations and alpha oscillations. So, these are these are are very much the same patterns produced differently, in one case produced by drugs, in another case produced by a brain injury, but they do they are manifest when patients are in in, in coma, pathological coma. And these burst activities, burst is it? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You're seeing it in the in the anesthesia stage also. I was wondering, is it the brain trying to break out? Um, does the brain have an understanding? <laughs> this is a tough question to ask, but uh, what I'm trying to get to is, does the brain understand it's in a... It's no, in a well, so that's interesting. So when you see this burst suppression, you think like, what is the brain struggling trying to break free in some sense, right? Now, yeah. it's, it, it, yeah. What it's indicating to you is it actually is indicating that it's actually going deeper. So remember I said the first thing is the chemicals are affecting these circuits. Okay, so, so you see the oscillations, the oscillations get to be slower and slower. And then they eventually, like if you're using drugs like propofol, the barbiturates or, or the inhaled ethers like sevoflurane, isoflurane or desflurane, 
you can go from there from these large slow oscillations into burst suppression. Like I said, you have these periods of bursting and then quiet. Now, so what's happening there is you're starting to bring into play another component of brain physiology. You're not only altering the circuits, but you're altering the brain's metabolic state. So the birth suppression represents an alteration in the brain's metabolic state, where it's probably at an energy precipice. And what happens is, is that it has enough energy for a little bit of time to sort of continue to be active, and then it shuts down. It's active, and then it shuts down. Now, that can occur pathologically, or just to make it give you a, a better sense, when someone is hypothermic, you know, they've you know been out in the snow too long or got really, really cool, or you cool someone down for cardiac surgery, this is exactly the brain, the pattern that you see on the EEG. So it's not only the electrical, the electrical activity of the brain being affected by the drugs altering the current flows, but it's also the electrical activity being altered because you're changing the metabolic state of the brain. Right. And and so uh, the, the effects of chemicals uh, from an anesthesia perspective, it is very much an individual dependent process, right? Um, there's no real standardization. Around I'm sorry, that. there's no standardization around. Meaning, you know, the amount of chemicals that would be needed and, and all of that, you have to you have to customize that right. for each so, individual. So there are conventions. And so for the inhaled drugs, the, the ethers, these conventions have been set by um, sort of conjectures about um, responses of patients to you know, how much someone will respond to a given amount of drug and then making age adjustments on those, on those sorts of targets, if you would. And that's the sort of thing that um, yeah. has been, that most anesthesiologists practice with. So, and they have, a, they have this concept, which is called MAC minimal alveolar concentration. And so it's the alveolar, con it's the concentration of anesthetic gas that you're administering such that approximately 50% of people would move to a painful stimulus. And so in this particular case, so, so that gives you a starting point. And then you say, okay, that's the, just to, just to make, it, make it a little more concrete. So that's maybe the, the amount of get, uh, anesthetic I'd administer to a young person who's, let's say, 30 to, you know, 30 to 35. Okay, this person's older, this person's 60 or 70, so I'll give a fraction of that, you know. So, so, or this person, you know, has, is more, um, has been on some medications, which maybe has made him or her more agitated or excited, so I'll have to go up on, on the dose in that case. So, so that's how the thinking goes. And, and so you have conventions and the conventions are then, the conventions are then, you know, used to dose the drugs. We, we think there's a better way of doing it, avoiding the conventions, which is the EEG is very clear as to what the level of unconsciousness is when you administer these drugs. Yeah. And by using the EEG, you, I, we think you can make a much more principled decision about how to dose the drugs and use them more judiciously and help reduce a lot of the side effects that we see typically as a consequence of patients probably receiving more than they actually need. Hmm. Yeah, we, uh, we'll take a quick break, Emery. When we come back, we'll talk about exactly that, how EEG could be used to sort of fine tune okay, this. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations 
with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we are back. Uh, Emery, we were talking about uh, anesthesia, differences between anesthesia, sleep, and coma, um, and how we can see how the brain, um, uh, the brain waves in the brain, so to speak, are different in different conditions. Um, you have another paper uh, in 2015, clinical EEG for anesthesiologists. You say widely used EEG-based indices for depth of anesthesia monitoring assume that the same index value defines the same level of unconsciousness for all anesthetics. Yeah, you say, in contrast, we show that different anesthetics act at different molecular targets and neural circuits to produce distinct brain states that are readily visible in the EEG. So... So if I understand this correctly, Emery, you're saying uh, along with EEG, you have sort of a better control as to how how you might uh, give this anesthetics. No, no question. It's it's um it's a very it's it's underused uh, technology, and it <clears throat> and it's it's very simple technology, but it can be used to substantially improve, I think, the care of patients. And yeah. so here, here's 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 what's occurring. So the um, the EEG under anesthesia, the, the EEG of anesthetized patients, basically changes systematically with respect to three things. So it depends upon the class of drug you're giving. So drugs in the same class will have very similar EEG patterns. The dose, as you increase it, the dose of a given you know class of drugs, the the pattern is going to change. And the other yeah. important variable is age. The patterns change dramatically with age, you know, representing, you know, at the young end, brain development, and at the older end, sort of, you know, brain aging. So yeah. when you were dosing the drugs, those are the three things that we need to take into account. And the argument is, if you do that, what we show in that particular paper there, the, the one for the electroencephalography for the anesthesiologist, we basically show the different dynamics that occur with the different drug classes and how they change, and we, and we also mention in, in, in subsequent papers how they change you know, with age. And our argument is that if anesthesiologists use this information, that they can have a more principled way to dose their anesthetic, relying more on convention. Because you can see in real time what the effect of the drug is on the brain. Yeah, I, I'm not suggesting this, but since it's really kind of systematic data, one would imagine that you can use, uh, you know, some sort of AI techniques for titrations and so on. That being tried, or well, I, I think I think that's the mistake that we're that we're we we don't want to make that what I think make that mistake yet. I think that what we should do is try to learn the patterns and learn yeah. the neurophysiology of the patterns because we can understand that we can understand them from a physiologic standpoint. We don't have to surrender them to a machine and have the machine tell us what's going on. You can, you can readily see this. Right. In other right. words, it's like, it's like saying, okay, let me use a machine learning algorithm to tell me if the pot is hot. Right. You, <laughs> you don't, you don't need a machine learning algorithm to tell you that. Right. Okay. It's, you're saying it's, it's sort of obvious and it's very systematic. It uh, is. It so, is. And, yeah, and, and more the- than that, more, I didn't mean to cut you off, but, 
yeah. not only is it system, but it's also physiological. In other words, the, the neurophysiology of these patterns are things we can come to understand. You know, we, yeah. I think we understand some of them, you know, fairly well now. Others we're still learning. But if it's actual physiology, it's not, you don't need to take black box approaches to it if it's actually a physiologic phenomenon. Right, right. You mentioned age. Um, age might might uh, bring in some uncertainty, I would imagine, right? Uh, does the brain age uniformly as everybody ages? No, that's a great question. We age, we, you know, we age different physically. I mean, you see some people who are in their 70s, you know, they look 50, that sort of thing. And some people yeah. who are in their 30s, you know, who look like they're in the 60s. And so the same is true for the brain. So there's between person variation there. But one of the things that we've come to appreciate is that by tracking that, you know, knowing how old someone is, typically as we get older, we need less anesthesia to achieve the same anesthetic state. Hmm. And you can individualize that, I think, much better if you're using the EEG as opposed to just using a convention that says, oh, it goes down 10% by every, you know, 10 years of age or something like that, whatever, whatever the convention might be. So you can actually see in real time because it's, you may even need far less, you know, an older, a typical older person may need far less anesthesia than one of the conventions might suggest. Uh, do we have a, a neurophysiological basis for why aging uh, results in less anesthetics uh, being required? Yeah, I, I think there. So the way I think about it is I just think of the anatomy of a neuron. So I take a neuron and I, and I think of what happens to that neuron as it gets older. So I just look at the components of the neuron. So the neurons linked together are basically the wiring in the brain, which transmits, transmits the electrical impulses which allow the various parts of the brain to communicate. So think of, the, think of the neurons as the wiring. Okay, now, as you get older, the insulation or the myelin sheath on, that, on, that, on those neurons breaks down. Okay? Yeah. You don't produce as much neurotransmitter. The dendrites don't extend and retract as well. The neuron is more susceptible to metabolic injury or oxidative, oxidative stress. The mitochondria don't work as well, and actually, the you know the tissue volume of the neuron actually you know shrinks as well. So it's so it's just like having old wiring in a house, if you would, right? If you're 80 years of age, those neurons have been around for 80 years, and so without even invoking any sort of processes like Alzheimer's or that type of thing, you can start to see why it would, if if the wiring itself has started to break down then what you need to interrupt the current flow across the wiring is not going to be a lot of anesthesia. Right, right. Have the anesthetics, anesthetics uh, shown to be useful in sort of rejuvenation of the brain in any way? The anesthetics themselves, not. In fact, it's just the opposite because, you know, as I mentioned, brain dysfunction after anesthesia is common, particularly in elderly patients. And elderly doesn't have to be you know, super elderly can be as, you know, 50 years of age, we can start to see brain dysfunction. And it can be anything from being delirious for a few, you know, hours, minutes after surgery to having word finding problems that might go on for several months. And, yeah. and again, some insight, this is not the entire answer, I'm not going to pretend like it is. But some insight into this can be gained by just thinking about what I told you, your brain normally sits. And when you're normally communicating, you have oscillations that are on the order of about five microvolts and they're about in the 30 to the 50 cycles per second range. And now what I do is you need surgery for four hours. 
I induce these very large oscillations, which are not natural. And I hold the brain in that state for four hours while you're having surgery. Then I turn it back on and I turn the drugs off. Now, it's ridiculous to think that all of a sudden those oscillations are just going to dissipate and the brain's going to pop back to being just like it was at the outset it's, it, b- before the anesthesia. It's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, just, so just that insight alone you know, gives, us, gives us some way to think about why brain dysfunction after anesthesia would be something that would, that, that would, uh, would be expected to occur given how the drugs are turning off the brain. Mm. And uh, the effects of psychedelics, uh, Emery, uh, is there a parallel uh, there? Well, um, the one that I know the most about is probably ketamine. And the answer is yes. And actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because remember, I just said that, you know, the effects of the drugs, uh, we, we wouldn't expect them to go away, you know, right away uh, once someone has been under anesthesia. And ketamine is the perfect example of this because you may realize now that in the last few years, it's become apparent that ketamine can be used as a therapy for depression. So people who have, um, you know, chronic depression, a high fraction or or an an important fraction of them are able to be treated by giving, getting low dose ketamine, you know, and it's a very small dose. It's a dose, which is a sub anesthetic dose, not enough to anesthetize you, but enough that would, could make you hallucinate. And it's given over it's a dose which is given over about, <clears throat> you know, 45 minutes to an hour or so. Now, think about it. The person was depressed and now they feel better. So whatever the drug is doing, it's inducing an effect that can last for several days, sometimes you know, seven to 10 days, maybe as long as two weeks. So if a low dose of a drug can have that profound an effect, I mean, just imagine what must be happening when you're using larger doses of different drugs. So it, it, you, don't, you don't have to scratch your head to sort of say, well, why should the brain, you know, not work after anesthesia? It's because we're, we, in other words, to put someone in a state so they can tolerate this traumatic event, namely surgery, we have to create these altered states of arousal. And we're paying a price in doing that in that the brain doesn't work the same way immediately after the anesthetic is turned off. So the dose makes a big difference. The dose makes a big difference. So if we can achieve an adequate state at a lower dose, particularly in an older patient, that would be highly desirable. Right, right. And so going back to the paper, I mean, so so uh, use of EEG to sort of titrate the patient is not part of the standard uh, not part of the standard protocol now. It's not part of it's not part of standard practice. I mean. And I, I think, you know, the estimate is somewhere around, you know, maybe 25% of anesthesiologists use some form of, you know, some form of EEG monitoring to control, to, to guide, you know, anesthetic management. But it, it's, it's not part of standard practice. There are things which we're required to do, which are uh, guidelines <clears throat> that have been set by the American Society of Anesthesiology, and EEG monitoring is not, is not one of those. Is it, it, isn't it sort of surprising? I mean, EEG is old technology, right? And if it has, you know, significant information uh, that allows the uh, the anesthesiologist to to make better decisions, is it so, sort of surprising why it hasn't? It, it is, and I think that part of the I think part of the um, I think part of the difficulty is that there have been some some um, techniques, you know, based on EEG that were perhaps oversimplified. 
And because they were oversimplified and didn't work as reliably as people had, would have expected them to, it's made people suspicious of the EEG altogether. And so, so but what we're saying is, is that um, it's, it, again, just if you think about it systematically, what really matters is the drug class. And you can just see this. And that's one of the things we show in this paper, the 2015 paper, the EEG for the anesthesiologist, like encephalography for the anesthesiologist. The drugs, the drug responses change very systematically with the drug class and also with drug dose. And, I'm, and we also know now from our other work that it changes systematically with age. So, and, and these are things that, and, 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 and the differences are, are, are readily visible and we think they can be linked. They can be linked to mechanism. So, so again, so sure. The, the and again, this isn't the, the full answer. I'll, 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 you know, this isn't the the end of the story. I think that, but it's a good place to start. And it, I think it provides a, a, as you're suggesting, it provides a very, very good point of departure to help guide anesthetic management. Yeah, and I also wondered, Emery, you know, there has to be some sort of conditioning effect, right? So if you're using alcohol or some other drugs, um, wouldn't you have some sort of a conditioning effect on the brain? Because There of are, and it can go either one of two ways. So someone who's acutely intoxicated, right, you need much yeah. less anesthesia to induce them. Someone who maybe, it maybe has, a, you know, a chronic alcohol problem because they've developed some degree of, I'll just speaking loosely, maybe resistance or tolerance then you might need more anesthesia to, to induce them. Right, right. And so that gets into the equation too. Um, it's clearly a complex problem. And uh, I remember reading in one of your papers, uh, some, something like 60,000 patients um, goes under anesthesia on a daily basis. Yeah, that's anesthesia. right. It's, I mean, it's one of the most, it's probably the most, uh, it's probably the, the, the technique which sort of affects the brain, you know, the most sort of all the things that we do in medicine. You know, we put you in the state so you can tolerate surgery and we bring you out. And it's not surprising that as the population ages, we're starting to see the consequences of, you know, this, this uh, the impact of this on people's brains because it's well established now that cognitive dysfunction, as I said early, after anesthesia, particularly elderly, is a common, is a, is a, is a, frequent occurrence. And so improving our techniques, either because we're monitoring, we have different drugs, we have you know techniques to control this, the delivery of the drugs better, are things that we really are gonna be compelled to think about more and more in the, in the, in the next few years because the population is aging, uh, you know, is aging substantially. Right. <laughs> Historically, uh, do we have, do we know when uh, anesthesia was first used um, in some sort of a surgical procedure? Yeah, so the, um, the first public demonstration of, of anesthesia took place in 1846, October 16th at, at Mass General Hospital. William Morton, who was a dentist at the time, yeah. uh, had delivered ether um, in a glass flask with a sponge inside soaked in ether to a patient, Gilbert Abbott, who was gonna have a tumor removed from his neck by a surgeon, John Collins Warren at MGH. And um, uh, Morton came up with this idea because he was a dentist and he was looking for a way to, to, to give patients a, a complete dental prosthetic because, but to do that, he had to take out all their teeth. 
And so he's looking for a way to take out all their teeth in sort of a, a, a painless way. And so he he's the person who's credited with giving the first public demonstration using ether. And that was in the, you know, so it was October, so the fall of uh, 1846, October of uh, 1846. So by the time, the end of the year, the first part of the next year, the idea had spread, you know, to England. And, but prior to that in 1842, Crawford Long, for whom the hospital at Emory University is named after, had been using ether in, uh, you know, in a similar way, you know, for, for surgical procedures. But he didn't publish his results until 1849, so it wasn't appreciated. Didn't have the, didn't have the sort of the the, the social impact that that the that the demonstration by Morton had. So it goes back to the 1840s and the first real anesthesia in the sense that you put someone in a state where they were seemingly insensate, so they could tolerate a surgery, uh, was probably in the 1840s. <clears throat> 1840s, yeah. So, you know, in some sense, it's sort of uh, recent as well. Um, so so I, I want to finish up um, with uh, your recent paper, uh, Emory, Multimodal General Anesthesia Theory and Practice. Uh, you said balanced general anesthesia, the most common management strategy used in anesthesia care, entails administration of different drugs together to create an anesthetic mm -hmm. state. Uh, anesthesiologists developed this approach to avoid uh, sole reliance on uh, on either for general anesthesia maintenance um, or more generally. Uh, at least intuitively, it feels like um, when, when you use multiple drugs, that there is interaction issues and all of those things you have to worry about. So does it uh, sort of complicate the process or... Uh, how do you how do you think well, about so, this? so with the balanced general anesthesia, I think what we've learned empirically is that if you use <clears throat> if you use combinations of drugs so yeah. that you're able to achieve the various components of anesthesia that I was talking about, like I said, unconsciousness, again, antinoception or analgesia, you know, amnesia and you know lack of movement, then if you're using specific drugs to try to control each component, then you're able to use less of those drugs and you have more of the good effects and fewer of the side effects. Or let me say it this way. You could just give someone like one of the modern day ether anesthetics, sevoflurane, and they would be insensate, yeah. you know, for the surgery. And, but you'd have to use high doses. You'd see the heart rate and blood pressure. You'd have trouble controlling it. And then the pain control after the surgery would, would be totally absent. But by using a combination of drugs, you can get better control. And then with the idea of multimodal anesthesia, we specifically focus on the idea of using multiple different drugs to control the pain component of anesthesia. In other words, yeah. the- At different times, different times in the process? No, simultaneously, simultaneously. So in other words, as you know, the most potent pain medication that we have are the opioids. And so, so- yeah. So using opioids in and of themselves isn't bad. It's just when you use them exclusively, we can start to get into trouble. So if you use drugs in addition to the opioids, let's say a drug like ketamine or you use a drug like um, dexmedetomidine, then what that does is they're attacking different parts of the pain pathway. So you're not relying just on the opioids. And then there's a second effect, secondary effect, which is really, really important they also contribute to you being unconscious. So the amount of propofol or one of the inhaled ethers that you would need to make the person unconscious is less. So this, right. 
So you, you come out of exactly. it exactly. That, that's what we that's what we found out empirically, and so this is something that we're now studying in a formal clinical trial um, with um, my colleague at the Beth Israel Hospital in Boston, um, Bala Subramanian, in which we we've yeah. we've put together a protocol using this multimodal idea for cardiac surgery. And you mentioned uh, clearly lower doses of each agent that 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 has uh, a beneficial effect. Um, you mentioned you have better control. So, um, so, so the, the reason you have better control is because of the lower doses. Or the, the, the better control reason? comes about because so you know there there are a number of different connections in the pain pathways. You know, going from you know the periphery, let's say, in your skin going up to the central parts of the brain. And so the different, there are different ways to modif- modulate those circuits. So again, the, one of the most potent ways to modulate them is using something like, um, like an opioid, right? <clears throat> but there are other drugs which also can act in those pathways to also help reduce pain or reduce nociception. And so, so, and because you're acting on different components of the system, it's not, it's, it, you know, the, the, the effect is, is um, the, 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 the drugs work together to create the state as opposed to having, you know, just one single drug. So, so that, that's, what, that's what's occurring. So you're, you're blocking pathways that, you know, where ketamine works, pathways where the opioids work, pathways where dexmedetomidine works or perhaps an anti-inflammatory drug. So each of them is going after a different piece. So together, they give you a much more comprehensive control of the nociceptive system than if you just use opioids alone. Yeah, so in some ways, this is a natural progression, right? As, as you learn more uh, about the circuits, as you learn more about the targets, the specific effects of each agent, um, this is sort of a natural progression towards saying, let's use a, a specific agent for a specific purpose, uh, but but you need you know sort of different things to happen during yeah, that time. I, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think that's that, in, that's indeed the case. I mean, and again, you know, this is you know much of this needs remains to be sort of established rigorously, like in clinical trials, but. The physiologic basis of it is very clear from my understanding of the pain pathways and also how these drugs interact with the pain pathways. So it, it seems highly, you know, highly plausible. And empirically, from what I've seen, like in my practice, it, it's uh, it, this experience seems to be borne out. But again, it needs to be tested formally in clinical trials. Yeah, yeah. So, so in conclusion, Emery, you know, we, we talked about mm-hmm. some of the things that you're working on. Uh, looking forward, uh, EEG, maybe more systematic use of EEG in anesthesia, uh, multimodal uh, general anesthesia we just talked about. If you look forward five, 10 years, uh, where do you see, uh, you know, we will make the sort of the most uh, interesting discoveries and developments in this area? In other words, how, how do you think the practice of anesthesia cha- uh, changing? Into well, the I, I think that, you know, um... As we start to understand more about the brain, we can start thinking about the design of drugs, which, you know, just like we have targeted therapies for, for let's say, like cancer, I think we can start thinking in those yeah. same sorts of terms of, you know, like 
the design of targeted anesthetics, which go and work in very specific parts of the brain, you know, create the state that we would like. And because they're very specific in where they're acting or the circuits that they're acting on, we even get even more of the good effects and fewer of the bad effects, if you see what I'm saying. So, so I think conceptually, right, right. So, but that requires really understanding the neuroscience of the brain in a much deeper level than I think we, you know, we, that we typically use in our anesthesiology practice. So I think that there are options for many improvements, you know, some of which hopefully will accrue in the, in, in the not too distant future. Yeah. So, so more targeted, um, more targeted application of anesthetics uh, and it's going to depend on the, the individual, the, the procedure the individual is going to go through. And uh, if I understand this correctly, perhaps use of uh, technology a little bit more in, in determining what might be the best, uh, best protocol. Yeah, I think technology be. can help us. But I, in other words, you know, the, the technology really has to be guided by a deeper understanding of the brain circuits and how the drugs, how the drugs or whatever approach we're using are acting in the brain circuits. I think <clears throat> moving to technology before we have really, you know, a, a deeper understanding would be, would be really putting the cart before the horse. Yeah, uh, by technology, I meant EEG. EEG, I think, yes, for sure. And I think that there's very compelling evidence to show how that could to uh, how that could improve uh, patient care by having more systematic, systematic and informed use of the EEG. I think that would be very, I, I think that's certainly possible. And um, you mentioned, you know, as, uh, as the average age of the population increases, uh, more perhaps surgical interventions so that 60,000 number in the U.S. can only go up, I would imagine. As, as I think know. so. And, and also, you know, as we, you know, it, it gets to be a bit of a, um, you know, as you're able to take better care of patients, then you're able to do things on patients who are even older. And so, again, so it pushes up kind of the risk group of patients that are going to have surgery. And we want to have procedures which, you know, allow us to take care of them the same way we would take care of someone who's, you know, who's otherwise, you know, healthy. So I, I think that's going to behoove us to really develop techniques that are much more precise and focused in how they render patients into the state of general anesthesia. Right. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. This has been great, Emery. Thanks so much. Thank for you. Thanks for having me. It's been my pleasure. Okay. All Absolutely. the best. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.